Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Ottawa Public Health is hoping to see a smoke-free country. The proposal banning an entire generation from being able to legally buy cigarettes in their lifetime. The proposal, now before Ottawa, to implement a ban on cigarette sales to anyone born after 2008 and raise the federal minimum age for purchase of tobacco to 21. Starting August 1st, warning labels will be printed not only on cigarette packages, but also directly on each individual cigarette. Both the UK and New Zealand have now made moves to eventually ban all smoking and tobacco use. So with Canada being one of the world leaders in warnings of the dangers of smoking, could we be the next country to try this? So that's the story that you've been getting from the news about cigarettes for years. Canada is a world leader in regulating big tobacco and a global success story when it comes to weaning the public off of smokes. Just last week, we saw proud headlines in national news about the decline of tobacco use in Canada, according to World Health Organization stats that say we are beating just about every country when it comes to convincing people to kick the habit. And given the tone and the content of Canadian news coverage on the Canadian government's anti-smoking efforts over the years, you might have the idea that the tobacco business is in serious trouble. Unless, I don't know, maybe vaping comes to the rescue. 
you might have the idea that our government here in Canada does not want anyone in the country to smoke. You might even believe that Public Health Canada is getting ready to ban cigarettes entirely, first for young Canadians and eventually for everyone. You might think all of that. And you'd be wrong, on all counts. That's according to Max Krangel, a lawyer who worked for big tobacco companies like R.J. Reynolds for 12 years. He says that the cigarette business, not the nicotine business, not the vaping business, but the cigarette business is more profitable than ever. And he says that government regulations are the reason why. He also thinks that the government might not really, actually, truly want to ever fully stamp out the cigarette industry because he believes that the government is the cigarette industry. This is a fascinating guy from a reviled industry, which, for some reason, he is willing to tell all about. And Max Krangel joins me in our studio in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Denny Brown, Jean-Luc Major, Chris Oliveros, Ryan Shiskowski, Adam Sprout, Jared Sykes, Robin Calda, and John. My name's John Cleveland. I'm a visual artist and lighting designer in theater and dance in Montreal. I support Canada Land for the same reason I support other media organizations like The Breach and Tai, because they and a few others are successfully maintaining a nuanced and critical conversation of what's happening in the country. Thanks for the coverage of the mystery neurological disorder in my home province of New Brunswick, which was integral to it being covered nationally by other networks. I'm proud to be a small contributor to what's going on at Canada Land, even if it is in Toronto. Keep up the good work. My name is Max Krangel. I am a former tobacco lawyer. We're having worked for a number of the world's largest tobacco companies. And I'm currently a business consultant uh, based in Toronto and in London, England, in which I advise highly contentious industries on their business strategy and their risk assessments and compliance with, with laws and regulations worldwide. Are you evil? No. I am a God-fearing uh, a family man. I love my family. I love my children. I work hard every day to provide for them. And I have seen what I do in my industry, in my previous industry, and what I do now is I work in a 100% lawful industry. I believe in the due process of the law. I believe everyone has the right to a defense. And uh, I, I stand by that. I also understand that, that, that the industry that I have predominantly worked in and the ones that I work in now have brought harm and misery to people. And I understand their position as well. And I've, I've had to come to peace with that. And I continually have to deal with that. The reputation's somewhere around like a Darth Vader, uh, the evilest of the evil corporations, big tobacco, I guess, up there with arms dealers. I, I would say it's probably worse than that. And and uh, I, I experienced a bit of that, certainly from inside working in the tobacco industry. It was a wonderful group of, of, of people. Uh, the instances of smokers within the industry itself was surprisingly exactly the same as the rest of the general public. So it wasn't as if there you've got hundreds of people or everybody sitting behind closed doors smoking 
smoking cigarettes, although I should say I worked in the industry at a time when you still could smoke in the workplace. There's no question the industry paid very well in times when other industries were going through various types of, of cutbacks. How well? What'd you make? I, I, I made very, very, very decent six figures. And uh, certainly uh, for the years that I was expatted abroad, I did very well. Um, the industry paid for everything. They paid for our, my rent, school fees for the children, nannies, flights home. You name it, I was very well looked after. I think I read that you were making a half a million dollars a year. Easily, yes. And then they were just paying for everything else. Yes. Uh, and at a high level, I would imagine. At a very high level, I was a corporate lawyer. Lawyers do very well, but lawyers in the tobacco industry do exceptionally well. What do you pay people to carry the stigma of, I work for big tobacco, you got to pay a premium for that. that? That's not a big shocker to me. I was surprised to learn about other things that the industry does, I would imagine, to mitigate that pressure that people feel like, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd really rather tell people that I work for UNICEF. Uh, so, you know, they, they can pay me more to stay here, but they also treated employees differently than I, you would imagine big evil tobacco treating employees. Big Tobacco treated their employees very well. They had to. There's no question that there, there has always been, or certainly in, in what I would call the modern tobacco industry, the last 30 years or so, uh, it has been more difficult to recruit people. And as a result, uh, they needed to pay well. And, 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 and they, con they consistently do. You write about how they kept track of your kids' birthdays and they knew what, what kind of toys your kids liked for a birthday present and they, had, uh, they, they were providing like mental health services for employees before it was fashionable to do so. Like just a real we take care of our people kind of an atmosphere. It, it definitely was. It was a tool that they used for employee retention. You alluded earlier to I think what people's popular conception is of, of the story of the fight against big tobacco, which, you know, there were movies like The Insider and liars uh, within the industry hiding research. They knew that it was killing people. They kept it from us, uh, you know, going after whistleblowers and uh, lawyers pounding the table with their fists. And, you know, that movie was a 90s movie and, and you began your work in 2000. And I think there is this conception that the fight against big tobacco was won. And we uh, have uh, really like maybe the biggest success story of public health initiatives ever that this thing that was just commonplace and everywhere and the advertising was everywhere and everybody smoked. And now it really feels like a completely stigmatized thing. And one would imagine that this is an industry that has been bested. I'm looking here at the stock price of the biggest tobacco company in the world, British American Tobacco. And the year that you began, 2000, it's kind of like a low point. The stock was trading at 484. Today, 2,702. What the fuck? So you need to really look at exactly what has transpired in terms of the assault on the industry in order to understand how is it possible that a business or an industry as a whole has lost over half their customers in the last 25 to 30 that years. Part that we, part we, is we, true. That part is true. We've convinced half of smokers. And it's probably greater than that. Yeah. yeah. Either people who would have started smoking haven't or people who have uh, smoked quit, which is no small feat. 
Absolutely. If you look at the Canadian numbers, about 25 years ago, the instances of smoking amongst adults was about 30% of adults smoked, slightly higher in Quebec than the rest of Canada. Today, it's about 10% to 15% of, of, of the adult population smokes. So there's, it's very clearly a win as far as public health goes. You might want to come to the conclusion that an industry which has lost more than half its customers over this period of time is in deep financial trouble. And the complete opposite is true. Well, the opposite would suggest that they're doing better. Which... They are, not only are they doing better, they are doing 10 times better than they were doing before with far fewer customers. In financial terms, these companies are more profitable than they were in, in the year 2000? Considerably more profitable, and it gets more profitable every year. Why? So it depends on the country that you look at. Because there still are places in the world where you can buy a packet of cigarettes for 25 cents. If we take the average price here in Canada, it's about $15, and that's probably today being generous. It's more than that. It's coming up to $20 a pack. And that has changed dramatically over that same 25 to 30-year period as well, when 1970s, you could get three packs for a dollar. So the question is, what happened? Well, the industry has been assaulted by the government. And by assaulted, I mean their freedoms to advertise uh, have been significantly curbed. Their ability to sponsor has been significantly curbed. Can they advertise anywhere? In this country, absolutely not. Not even at point of sale. In fact, you can't even show the product at eye level at point of sale anymore. Yeah, it's, it's in a locked box. It's in a locked box, so you can't show the brands. You can't show any of the old tobacco liveries for the, 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 the trademarks on the packages anymore. You can't sell via vending machines. The smoking age has been consistently raised. There are massive anti-smoking campaigns that, that the government pays for and the tobacco industry is mandated to pay for. And all of these costs which the industry were facing before, for example, for advertising, well, none of the tobacco companies are allowed to advertise anymore. So the millions of dollars that, that were being spent by the industry now just goes to the bottom line. So there's a cost saving right there. That's cost saving number one. Cost saving number two, well, when you put everything behind a locked box or below the counter, effectively what you're doing for the existing players in the market is to preserve their market share because there can't be any new market entrance because you can't advertise that you have a cigarette brand. If you and I wanted to start our own cigarette brand tomorrow, there is no way we could let the general public know that it was there and we can't show it to anybody at a point of sale in this country. So the regulations effectively locked in and guaranteed the market for the incumbents. 100% it did, and it got even better than that. Because then what they did is they said, well, we're going to regulate what you put in the product. And that means that you can't put any flavorings or top dressings. You can't use anything like menthol in your product. And by the way, you can't use any product descriptors like lights, mild, or ultra anymore. So all the R&D and all the like managing multiple brands, it's, it's just like... It's all gone. 25 years ago, you had 10 different uh, SKUs of, of Dumouriez cigarettes or player cigarettes. SKUs, like each individual product has its own scanning unit sure. code. Lights, milds, ultras, special blend, royal blend, and 
10 different sizes, there were now there's maybe one or two variants of the products because you can't distinguish and use those product descriptors. And the cigarettes basically all taste the same because you, you can't use any flavorings anymore. So the manufacturing costs have gone way down. And that also is a cost-saving right to the bottom line. So you've saved on advertising and sponsorship. You've guaranteed market shares and no new market entrance. You've brought the manufacturing costs right down, which, by the way, what we're talking about here really are dried leaves and paper. This product should rationally cost less than a dollar a pack if, if it was just about how much it costs to make it. Correct. It's, it's pennies to make, to make these things. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you what the precise cost is today, but it, it is very, very low. And then, of course, is the, 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 the real stinger, and that is the industry has the greatest business partner in the world, the governments of the world, whether at federal or provincial The governments level. have been fighting big tobacco for decades. They have been fighting them, but they have also inadvertently been protecting them by forcing them to raise the taxes and duty and excise on the product every year, sometimes twice a year for the last 25 to 30 years, which, by the way, is how you get from three packs for a dollar to $20 for one pack. The government increases the sin tax on tobacco for, my understanding has been for two reasons. One is because uh, smokers cost the healthcare system and all these public health initiatives cost money and, and they're going to get smokers to pay for those things. And the other is, is a disincentive, right? So they're trying to just make it so expensive that people quit. How does that make them a partner to the tobacco industry? It seems like they're trying to kill the tobacco industry. So every time they raise those duties, the tobacco industry throws a few pennies on the price increase as a manufacturer's price increase. But the government gets blamed for raising the, the taxes, but the tobacco industry is all, has also been raising their, their price at the same time. Now, find me another industry worldwide where consumers are going to accept the price of their product going up sometimes twice a year, every year for 25 years, and they keep buying the product. So the profitability of the industry is measured on a per-stick basis, meaning that they look at how much is the company making per sale of 1,000 cigarettes. Well, let's go back 25, 30 years ago probably making less than five U.S. dollars per thousand. But when you're selling billions of cigarettes, don't get me sure. wrong, that's still a lot of money. Well, that number today is well over $150 per thousand. And how do they get there? Well, if you're selling three packs for a dollar, sure, you're going to have, a, and no taxes, you're going to have a pretty high profit margin on there. But now that the government is taking upwards of 80% of the price of a packet of cigarettes in taxes, that seems pretty extreme, except if you're selling a packet of cigarettes for $20 and 80% goes to the government, that's still a $4 profit which is shared between the tobacco industry and the distributor and, and, and the point of sale, which is far greater than the margin that they were making 25 years ago, which could have been a 90% margin, but I'd rather have 20% of $20 than 90% of 33 cents. It's a simple mathematical calculation. There's a lot of numbers really quickly right there. Breaking it down, before all of this, the tobacco company sold a pack of cigarettes and they would make? Pennies. And now, what do they keep? They could be keeping upwards of $2 per pack or more. So the simple math of this is the decrease in customers is more, well more than made up for in the increase in profits per customer. 100%. And we're not talking about merely like you lost 50% of your customers, but you've got 55% more profit. 
like the, the difference between pennies and dollars is a difference of of a uh, hundred over one, right? A- absolutely. So absolutely. We're, we're talking about like an order of magnitude more profitable. In order of magnitude more profitable, and what you see elsewhere in the world, and and, and another statistic which is is very shocking, is that while the numbers of smokers in Canada has steadily decreased because of all of this regulation and taxation that's been brought upon the industry, elsewhere in the world, smoking has has increased in in other countries. In fact. And this is a terrible statistic, but there are more smokers in the world today than it had ever, ever any time in the past. Holy shit! Well, there's more people in the world, and that I guess. And, and, and that exactly explains. But they it. can also like I guess they could kind of go through the exact same process of unregulated markets where they're selling them for pennies or quarters, and then the regulations are going to come in. And now the, uh, there's another cost savings that you haven't mentioned, which is services like your own. All those years they spent giving them the industry a bad name, fighting in court, mm-hmm. it sounds like they – I don't know. You tell me. Are they still fighting regulations or do they see regulations as – as their friend. I think it depends on what that regulation is and how far far is too far. One of the regulations that is still being fought is the removal of the, the plain packaging legislation, which exists here in Canada. It exists in the UK. It exists in Australia and a, a number of other countries uh, around the world. But certainly, it's still a minority thing. And that's removing the, the livery uh, and the logos and the branding that has been so iconic to the industry. So they're still so fighting here and there. They also kind of have a game plan now with like Maybe it's in their short-term interest to fight and delay some of these things. But then once they lose, they know what to do next. I would say that's definitely the case. You can certainly look at a financial model and you can see countries where there are few regulations and, and low taxes where they're selling 10 times, if not 100 times more cigarettes, but the profitability is very low. So it's pile them high and sell them cheap. As that price goes up because of the regulations and the taxation getting stronger, the amount of smokers goes down, but the profitability per pack goes up. And right. it's, it's a very well-established model. When we tell people that the tobacco industry is thriving, I think that people will assume that's, oh, that's because of vaping. They've moved, they've they diversified in the same way that I guess big oil gets into the, the green energy. The solution to the problem is provided by the same, or the risk mitigation of the problem, the lesser evil is provided by the same company that was uh, creating the problem in the first place. Is that true? I don't believe it's true. I think there there are a certain there is a certain percentage of smokers that move over to a vaping product. There is a new generation of vapors that were never smokers before, which in itself is quite terrifying and shocking. Mm-hmm. But you have a, a situation now uh, where the tobacco brands are still holding strong. And, and what would be interesting to watch in the future is will one of these tobacco companies take one of their iconic cigarette brands – such as Marlboro or Camel or Du Maurier or whatever that might be and move that branding onto a vape product. I haven't seen that happen. It may well happen in the future. But the tobacco industry is involved in the vaping industry, but they are still two very, very distinct pastimes. And they're, while they are both nicotine uh, – have nicotine delivery at their core, uh, they are two very, very different products. Given the fact that all the advertising is gone, and that all these iconic brand names and Joe Camel and the logos are visually unknown to my kids. And you can't even see a pack of cigarettes when you go into the store. Isn't this all going to be grandfathered out? I mean, there's there's no new smokers coming into anything but vaping, I would imagine, or very, very few. Like, where do you even 
see representations of cigarettes to put the idea in your head anymore with all the advertising gone? I think the answer is as follows, and it's not what people want to hear, and it's frankly the, 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 the statistics that I've seen, that I've been privy to since leaving the industry, are not really good news, uh, particularly when you put the product below the shelf. First and foremost, even though you've removed the branding, the beautiful livery off the packs of the cigarettes that were created over many, many years, you still have a brand name on the, on the packet of cigarettes, which people can see and non-smokers can see. But in my view, and that the numbers are a little bit disappointing in this respect, when you take a product that is so highly regulated and you hide it away from the general public and you say to a group of, 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 of teenagers or young adults, hey, there's this product that's behind the counter that is sold in every store, in every variety store, in every gas station and other types of, uh, other types of similar locations around the country that you're not allowed to see. What do you think they're going to think? They're going to say to themselves, hey, what's, what's behind that magic curtain over there? What's behind that secret door? Who are these people buying these, these weird sticks? And unfortunately, by putting the product below shelf, it increases the curiosity of non-smokers and non-smokers tend to be younger people who don't know what this is. And they see the product and they want to try the product because they're being told that they're not allowed to have it. By that logic – Every non-smoking sign is an advertisement for cigarettes. Every non-smoking sign in the world is – it is quite possibly the greatest advertising campaign in the history of global marketing. Paid for by the government. Paid for by the government, which gives a message to everybody, not just smokers and non-smokers alike. It says you cannot smoke here. Not that you can't smoke at all, but you can't smoke here. But – when there's a no smoking sign, that by default means you can smoke elsewhere. Smoking exists. Smoking exists. It's something that people might want to do here. They're forbidden to do it here. Right. They can do it somewhere else. Correct. And as a result of that, it reminds people, it keeps smoking in the psyche of people that it still exists, <laughs> and it entices non-smokers You're to kind of winning me product. over. I thought that argument was silly for a second, but if you had signs up that were like, no cocaine use here, no, and with noses and, and straws and lines, and there was just depictions of cocaine use, and you introduced that at, at the scale at which we have no smoking signs everywhere, that's a lot of publicity for the act of snorting right of cocaine. Absolutely. If you think about it, think about the curiosity of younger people. I mean, imagine in the days when pornographic magazines were still sold in, in, in variety stores. They were on the top shelf. There's usually a piece of cardboard in the front so that you couldn't see the cover. Find me one young person that wasn't looking up going, I really want to see that. Yeah. Right. And unfortunately, that's the stigma has, has, has continued uh, with, with, put, with hiding away tobacco. You're now left with a situation where the number of smokers is relatively stable, so people are still coming on to it. And what are you going to do to curb that? Well, people still smoke in TV shows. They still smoke in movies. There's still – you know, I guess the bigger question is when does this shift? At some point in the future, is this ultimately going to phase out – the desire to smoke by raising the prices to a level which becomes completely unaffordable. You know, $20 a pack is pretty unaffordable as it is if you're a pack-a-day smoker. 
But if you'd said to someone 30 years ago when it, you got three packs for a dollar that it's going to be one pack for $20, they'd look at you as if you're nuts. It's about it's like saying the same thing today. Well, you know, 20 years from now, it's going to be $100 for one pack of cigarettes. Well, that will certainly change things. And further initiatives by the government will change things. But until the government is ready to do without the revenue that they are receiving and they find another way to, to tax that revenue, it's going to continue for sure. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. I want to follow up on something else that you brought to my attention, which is uh, it, it's, it's, our focus has been on the companies themselves and how every time the sin taxes go up each year or twice a year, mm-hmm. they tack on a little bit. They piggyback, I guess, and they, and they, uh, they increase their profit margin and, and the consumer just eats it and blames the government. Um, and that's how they be, become more profitable than ever. Fine. But there's another story there, which is the majority beneficiary of the tobacco industry, and you, you call them the business partner, they're the dominant business partner, the government. Mm-hmm. And as I said, my understanding of the government's take was that that's how they pay for the burden on the healthcare system, and that's how they pay for these public health campaigns. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah, there are a couple of interesting points that come out of there. The first question, which I think is an interesting question and certainly a debatable question, the government has for many, many years justified raising the taxes to say that we are doing this in order to pay for the mess created in the healthcare system caused by the tobacco industry. 
And there's definitely some truth to that uh, because uh, one in two smokers is going to contract a tobacco-related illness and will probably be their cause of death. 45,000 people die annually in Canada with a death associated to smoking. That's 125 people per day. And there are costs associated with their care leading up to their death. 100% there is. But the question is, are they actually creating an unnecessary burden on the healthcare system? Because the, it seems like an unnecessary burden. They didn't need. To, there was no necessity in them smoking and giving themselves lung cancer. That is true. But that's looking at it from a bird's eye view and without looking at the specific details about what's happening in general to those smokers. The average smoker dies eleven years before their natural death. Oh, than shit. somebody that's a non-smoker. <laughs> I see what you're doing here. So if you want to look at this as a complete cynic and say, well, listen, in the latter third of your life is sort of the business end of your relationship with the government in which you are taking advantage of many government-related schemes, whether they be old age security or pension plans or a healthcare system or something else that you require later on in life. If you're dying 11 years on average before everybody else, then there's an argument to be made that you're actually doing the taxpayer a favor. And it's also assuming that all those people who are non-smokers are not costing the government the same amount of money with a different type of illness at the end of their lives. Okay, so this is some Darth Vader shit. So essentially, you have to, if we're going to be purely uh, cynically transactional about this, mm -hmm. yes, that, that lung cancer death cost a lot of money on the way out. But if that person had lived into a, a ripe old age, they would have died of something else that would have been, you know, had costs associated with it as well. And there might have been another 10, 20 years of life in which they, that's when they're taking the maximum amount of money out of the system through their various benefits that old people get in this country from the social safety net. Maybe from a purely financial point of view, we should be encouraging more smoking. I wouldn't encourage anybody to smoke, but 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 <laughs> yes, you can look at it that way. Okay, okay, okay. I, I I get it. And again, won't won't uh, my focus is actually on the on the on the financial here. Mm -hmm. If that's true, and a smoker's death is either revenue neutral for the system or even represents a savings. What the hell is the government doing with all that money they're making from the tobacco industry? It's a great question, and it's one that's actually quite difficult to understand. Like billions, right? Billions like, of dollars. and it's and they, They're the biggest beneficiary of big tobacco. So in this country, they take about 80%. Holy shit. Which is significant. 80%. So that brings up another question, too. Okay, I'm sorry, but... Do they want it to – that would be a huge financial crisis. Their budgeting now expects that money. Not only expect it, my understanding – and I, I'm not an economist, uh, so I'm giving very general numbers here. But if the government were to uh, tomorrow make a decision and completely outlawing the sale of all tobacco products in Canada, ignoring all the social uh, consequences of doing that uh, and having millions of people uh, – withdrawing a product from the market that millions of people are addicted to and dealing with the consequences of that, put all of that aside and just say tomorrow – the sale of tobacco products are, is banned, the government is going to have to look for uh, another way of getting that revenue into the treasury every year. My understanding is that number is north of adding 10% onto everyone's income tax just to make up the same amount of money that the government takes in from tobacco, duties, taxes. You have to take both the federal and the provincial and then, of course, taxing the profits of the industry itself, all of those together, and the sales taxes involved with it, the excises, everything putting together. It is a significant 
significant part of, of, of the budget. And to my first question of how are they spending all of the excess uh, money that goes outside of the costs associated with trying to stamp out smoking, which now we know they may have reason not to do, you, of course, can't answer that question because they, they don't account for that. There's no sense of like, well, here's how we spent the in tax money we collected. It's difficult to do that. The government certainly doesn't publish those figures. And of course, some is split provincially and some of it goes federally. I think, though, that the more interesting fact, the point about that is looking at, okay, the government is taking upwards of 80% of, 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 of the sale. Who's actually controlling this business? Who really is to big tobacco in these days? Well, clearly you have your large tobacco companies, whether they be Philip Morris, Japan Tobacco International, British American Tobacco, and a host of, 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 of other smaller but very profitable companies as well. Okay, they're the trademark owners. They are actually manufacturing the product. They're procuring the sale and distribution of the product. So very clearly, we do have a tobacco industry. But who's controlling that? And if you want to be a cynic and, and look at this from a different perspective, you could make a very, very good argument that actually the tobacco industry is the government because they are the main stakeholder in the business. And in more ways than just taking on those billions of dollars of taxation revenue and taking 80%. So you have a stakeholder that's taking 80% of the profits from a company. They're controlling that business. And I don't think too many people would say they're not controlling the business. But it's not just that. It goes further. They're also regulating what goes in the product. They're regulating how it's sold. In many countries, they're regulating the price. They're regulating who can and cannot smoke, where the product can be consumed, what age you have to be to buy it, how it's distributed, whether or not you can use the livery that, uh, and the branding on your product that you've built up many, built the value up over many years. Who's controlling this? And when you look at it, it's actually you could make a very good claim and a very good case to say, actually, the big tobacco are the governments of the world. Well, except that 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 unprecedented level of control that the government exerts over this one industry is commonly thought of as a means for the destruction of that industry. That the point of this is to, is to gradually phase out the industry itself. Are you suggesting they have no such intention? Well, that's a great question. Uh, uh, and I think you can. It's very difficult to answer on either side uh, because no one is, no, no one from in the industry is ever going to admit that. And no one from the inside the government, as far as I know, is ever going to. Has any government done it? Has any government just simply outlawed cigarettes? So there is one country in the world that that where where tobacco sales are outlawed, and that is Bhutan. There are no other jurisdictions in the world, uh, certainly at the moment, where tobacco is completely legal. What is interesting is the government of New Zealand recently brought some legislation to the table, which wanted to to gradually bring in a, no, a graduated no-smoking age so that children born uh, from 2024, 2025 onwards um, wouldn't be allowed to, uh, to, to purchase cigarettes in the future. That legislation has been struck down and there are many, mm -hmm. potentially many constitutional legal problems with that kind of argument. Why did you leave? It seems that you've, you, you've made peace with, uh, I'm I not creating a space here to moralize or uh, accuse anybody of hypocrisy. The point is you were able to make your peace with working for Big Tobacco until you left. So why did you leave? I had moments when I was there that did make me question the industry. Um, at foremost, I was a lawyer. I am a lawyer, and I was defending an industry, and I believe everyone has the right to the due process of the law. So 
in itself, as a lawyer, I made peace with, with the business itself. I did have some hard days in my, my very junior days working in the domestic British and Irish business in London about 25 years ago. Uh, I had a couple of hard days w- when I was the lawyer advising the consumer services team. People used to used to write in to the company with various types of complaints about the product, whether it had been an exploding cigarette that had been in their pack, or they fell asleep in bed and burned themselves with the product. An exploding cigarette? Uh, exploding cigarette, yeah. Some what of, the hell is in cigarettes that can explode? So some of the lower tar brands, in order to get the, 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 uh, the delivery of the tar and nicotine down below a certain level, uh, you had to make a – rather than put in proper cured tobacco, you'd put something in called tobacco sheet, which was basically like uh, tobacco popcorn. And uh, that tobacco sheet that went into the product sometimes had air pockets in it, and it was not uncommon, although not in every pack, of course, but it, it was known to – pop a little bit and and cause a bit of a spark. Not in every pack. It's sort of like uh, the golden ticket in a Willy Wonka chocolate bar. Well, absolutely. A- absolutely. They did, those products didn't taste very nice either, but in the in the 1990s and 2000s, there was a push for a healthier tobacco product, and it was deemed at that time that smoke a light cigarette and that it's better for you than smoking a full flavor, full tar nicotine cigarette. There's certainly no scientific proof behind that, and there's definitely no way of smoking. But that's the way it was going. Even in Canada, the drive by the government for many, many years was to force the tobacco industry to put the toxic constituents on the side of a pack and to lower those toxic constituents over a period of time in the hopes that people would smoke less and and inhale less by having a lower tar and a lower nicotine product. I'm not sure I actually got the answer to the question, why did you leave the industry? I left the industry... Uh, for a couple of reasons. I had done uh, a a number of years working as an expat, uh, which, uh, as we started by saying, you know, it was very financially beneficial. But they pay you that money for a reason, and they they move you around. I was uh, uh, traveling consistently all of the time. Every week I was flying around somewhere. And my decision to leave the industry actually was based upon more about the lifestyle that I was leading rather than the business that I was working in. Um, I, I, I'd love to sit here and tell you that I had a, a, a moral moment when I said, no, I, I, I must stop this. I can't do this anymore. That wasn't the moment. I, d- I did have some moments like that along, along the way, particularly when you're dealing with, 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 with family and, 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 and cancer and, and, and the tragedy that, that tobacco causes to pretty much every family in, in, in wor- worldwide. But I didn't leave because of that. It wasn't the exploding cigarettes. It wasn't the exploding cigarettes. To There's me, a difference between coming to a moral place where you say, I, I cannot in good conscience do this anymore is a different thing than saying, I'd rather not have to explain this to people all the time. It's a bit of a burden to have to apologize or explain or deal with people who call me names. Like it's just, you know, given the choice, I'd rather not. It does wear thin very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I was traveling around the world uh, uh, very frequently. It was very tiring. I was not seeing my children growing up. I, there, there was one year I'd never even been to my children's school. I hadn't met their teachers. Uh, and my youngest daughter didn't even know who I was because I was away so much. And I said to myself, this has got to stop. This is all fascinating. You left the industry and you say that you now provide legal advice for contentious industries. I mm-hmm. guess tobacco is a contentious industry. What else is a contentious industry? Uh, cannabis, uh, mushroom, psilocybin, Online gaming, uh, pharmaceutical, nutraceutical, adult products, those types of things. Sin businesses. Sin businesses, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
helping companies with compliance and and, and understanding that uh, your product may be severely restricted and those restrictions uh, can bring con- – if you breach those restrictions, there can be significant consequences, whether those consequences are fines, whether they're lawsuits, whether they're some other kind of penalty. So here you are. You've left Big Tobacco, but you have an area of expertise, which is – extensive experience navigating a detested, hated, tightly, highly regulated industry as it discovers that despite that enmity and animosity and despite the government supposedly regulating it out of existence, it can become more profitable than ever and you decide that you're going to take that know-how to every other industry that you can. That's exactly what I've been trying to do, and with some success, I'd like to hope it's because of the work that I do and and that and, and, and how the advice that I give to my clients. I think there's a bit of corruption there. Okay, this is where my conversation with Max Krangle about cigarettes ends, and where our conversation about guns, porn, and journalism begins. And that conversation deserves its own episode. And we will be bringing you that very soon. That's your Canada Land episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. Our website is canadaland.com. Come and sign up for our newsletter. You won't regret that decision. We need you to support the work that we do here. Uh, This industry is in terrible shape. Our business only works and only sustains. We're only here because listeners like you decide to support us. We give you everything we can when you make that decision. We give you bonus content that nobody else gets. We give you early releases. We give you tickets and discounts to our events live and virtual across the country. We have discounts on our merchandise. We show love for our supporters every way we can, but the reason why people support us is to keep this whole thing going and to make sure that everybody else can get our stuff for free and so that they can become a part of the solution to this crisis in journalism in Canada. Don't think twice about this decision. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join right now to keep the lights on over here. Help us out. This is how we do it. canadaland.com slash join. The senior producer of this episode is Bruce Thorson. Our audio editor is Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.